Kids, you guys are dismissed for, for class. Good morning. Good to see you all. Pray you've had a great week. Um, my week has looked pretty much like it has since the beginning of April. Spent every evening at a baseball field or softball field. Uh, and, and I continue to notice that there's many things that's changed in baseball, softball since I was a kid. When I was a kid, you basically owned a glove, and that was it. When you'd go to the field, the, the league would provide several helmets, a couple bats. Usually you'd have to choke up. They'd be too big or something, but you just have a glove pretty much. Um, when you get up to bat, usually you had to run out to second base and change helmets with the kid on second base. Um, and that's just the way it, that's the way it was. T- today, though, it's so different. Every kid comes in with these cool bags. They all have a glove. Then they have helmets. They have their own helmet. Nobody can, you know, has got their name on their helmet. Uh, they've got a bat. Some kids have two bats because, you know, that's needed when you bat with two bats, right? So, um, but it's just, it's just different. Um, but some things haven't changed uh, since I was a kid. And today, there's still, like, all these superstitions with baseball. Um, do you know that, like, if you step on the foul line when you're coming on the field or getting off the field, that's bad luck? You know that, right, if you do that? Uh, it's still bad luck to talk about a no-hitter while there's a no-hitter intact. Uh, it's hard to find a number 13 on anybody's jersey. Uh, so there's all these random superstitions. You know, some baseball players, they won't wash their uniform if they've had, like, a good batting streak or a winning streak. Uh, they, they just won't wash their uniforms. There's a, there's a bunch of these. Um, some players keep their favorite baseball player, their baseball card, in their back pocket. That's going to give them good luck. Baseball players are very superstitious, but it's not just baseball. We, we all can bend that way in some ways. Like, there's plenty of common everyday superstitions, like don't step on the crack or what. You might break your mother's back. Of course, that happens, right? I've met many people. Oh, what happened to you? Well, my son stepped on the crack. <laughs> don't walk under a ladder, right? Oh, it's terrible you do that. Walk under a ladder. If you break a mirror... You have seven years of bad luck. Uh, so humans were, were fascinated by the supernatural. Uh, this morning's passage has some of that in it. Uh, John chapter 5 contains what appears to be a local superstition in which Jesus uses as an opportunity to radically change this man's life. So if you brought your Bible, look down in your Bible as we read chapter 5 of the Gospel of John This morning we are in verses 1 through 18. John writes this, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. 
Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man who said to me, Take up your bed and walk, they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for making yourself clearly known to us who you are, that you are fully God, fully man, and we just marvel at your power. We marvel that you come seeking after those who are, who are sick. Lord, I pray that if there's any sick here this morning, spiritually sick, physically sick, that you'd work in a mighty way in their lives. Would help us to trust you more, to love your word. Give us eyes to see how you're at work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the second time, if you've been following along in John's gospel, this is the second time we've seen Jesus come to Jerusalem. First time was in chapter 2 when he came to the temple for the Passover. That's where he overturned the table. He had this discussion with Nicodemus. After that, he went out into the Judean wilderness And then in chapter 4, he crossed the track, so to speak, and went into Samaria. Then last week, he left Samaria and came to Cana, where we also saw where he had, um, his first sign was where he turned the water to wine. He came back to Cana, and that's when he met this official from Capernaum. Um, Jesus probably left Cana and went to Capernaum at some point. And now in verse 1, we see he's come full circle. He's back now in Jerusalem. Remember, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, it does not go well for him. He, he's not there often, um, and this is probably why. It's very heated. It's a lot of tension when he's in Jerusalem. Verse 1 begins with after this, which just simply means we don't know exactly how much time from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, we see from verse 1 that he's at another feast, but here we're not told which one, so we don't, we don't really know. Seems like it doesn't matter according to John. He just knows that it's a feast, that he's gathered it. At Jerusalem. We read in verse 2 that in Jerusalem by the sheep gate there was a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. Now, if this is the same sheep gate as we can see in the book of Nehemiah when they're rebuilding the, the walls and getting everything back in order, then this would be on the northern side of the city walls. Verse 3 tells us that inside the courtyard of this pool, there laid a multitude of invalids. These invalids consisted of blind, lame, paralyzed. In the midst of these multitude of invalids, John shines this bright light on this one man. 
And much like last week's encounter with the official from Capernaum, much like the week before that, the woman in, um, from Samaria, the, the, this man is anonymous. We don't know his name. He's just the man. Um, not only was this man paralyzed, it seems like he must have been invisible. You, you know what I mean? Like, he's invisible to everyone but Jesus. And I think we probably encounter invisible people every week. They're at the grocery store. They're in your school. They're at your office, across the street, maybe even in your own house. These are people that go unnoticed from the majority of humanity simply because they, maybe they dress differently, they, they look differently, maybe they have a disability, maybe they are just extremely introverted. And I pray that we, that you and I have eyes just like Jesus for invisible people in our lives. We see in verse 7 that this man says that he has no one to put him in the water, no friends, no family. This is so heartbreaking. So he seems like he's kind of an invisible person. He's been here 38 years. Think about it. 38 years. That's longer than most of you, as I scan the room, has been alive. I'm just curious. This is always fun to do. How many of you are 38 and younger? You'll see hands. Yeah, oh my goodness. Look around. We are such a young congregation. Um, I love that. Um, and so if you didn't raise your hand, you're, well, you're one of the old people. I'm one of the old people here. Um, so 38 years. Now think about Jesus here. Jesus is probably around 31, 32 years old at this point. This man has been an invalid longer than uh, even before the incarnation took place. It's crazy to think about. But on this day, everything was about to change. Jesus would radically change this man's life. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What an interesting question, right? He's been there 38 years. But think about it. He's, you know, his, his legs don't work. He's laying there for 38 years. Just think, like, there's probably sores on his legs, probably not well um, cared for. Do you want to be healed? What an, what an interesting question. You know, at surface level, it seems very silly, right? He's been there 38 years. If this was 1985, the guy would have said, well, duh, of course I want to be healed. Well, you know, that's why I'm here. Why else would I be at the pool with these magical properties if I didn't want to be healed? It would be like someone coming to the hospital for several months. You know, they're there. They're, they've been um, put in a room, sick, dealing with some illness. And Dr. Poole, who I don't know if I see Dr. Poole this morning. He's probably at work. Let's say he comes in and he asks the patient who's been there for several months, do you want to be healed? Well, uh, yeah, that's why I came to the hospital, right? That's what you do. It's the purpose of going to the hospital. It's a sign that you want to get better. Well, the pool is essentially a first century hospital. That's what it is. But Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? The man's reply is, is not what we'd expect either, is it? In verse 7, the man answers him, not duh, but sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. That's not how we'd probably answer. And I need to stop for a moment, take a brief tangent to explain something from this passage 
because some of you may have already noticed this when I was reading the whole passage. Maybe you've noticed it already and you're already confused. Maybe you're struggling. Some of you may have already noticed, but unless you're reading from a King James this morning, which probably isn't the majority of you, that there is no verse 4 in this passage. Did you catch that? You probably have some footnotes somewhere around where verse 4 would be, which will bring you down to the bottom of your page, and most of your versions probably have a little footnote with something that reads something like this. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, waiting for the, wa- waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So now when I read the passage, that little statement is not in there. So what in the world's going on? Well, at some point, a copyist, you know, some scribe, added this local superstition or this belief to this passage, probably in the margin, which is very common. Um, you would, scribes would just make little notes over in the, in, in the margins. Um, he would added these probably because it was, he thought this was being information that had been helpful to the reader. But at some point, the translators moved those words from the margin and probably put them in the actual text. But as older manuscripts have been discovered, older than what the King James Version used to translate the Bible, none of the older manuscripts have this verse in it. So that's why it's been taken out of the actual passage, placed at the bottom as a footnote. Now, this may bother some of you, and you may think this makes my Bible less trustworthy. You know, how, you know if that shouldn't have been in there for all these years, how do I know the rest should be in it? I'm going to argue that this should make the Bible more trustworthy. Um, I'm going to spend a lot more time on this once we get to the end of chapter 7, because cha- end of chapter 7 is a real famous, popular section in John's gospel. It even has brackets. It says this section maybe shouldn't be in the original text, um, or maybe might not have been in the original text. So I'm going to spend a lot more time then in a few weeks. So I'm not going to jump into all that now. If you're struggling with this, let me know. I'll point you to some resources. But I think this is, these are the things that help us as Christians to trust the Bible more, not less. So here's this man. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And he starts to make excuses. You know, no one can take me to the water. I've, I've been here. Somebody else beats me. It seemed like this man and the multitude of others really believed that these waters either had medicinal powers or miraculous powers. You know, according to legend, there'd be an angel at certain seasons that would come down. But they devoted their lives to the promise of what these waters could do. According to this local tradition, it wasn't just that the water would bring healing to just anyone who got into the pool. You had to be the first one in it. Speed was of essence. Now think about this man. This would put this man at a huge disadvantage, wouldn't it? I'm guessing even a blind man could stumble upon the water before this paralyzed man could drag himself to the pool. He's never going to come in first place. So when I read a passage like this, just being transparent, I can be quick to judge these people by thinking, how silly does this all sound, right? 
Like you're just wasting your life on some superstition. This is the equivalent of throwing a penny into a fountain and hoping it will cure your cancer. You're like, come on. You're telling me that the first one in the water is the one who's healed. Really? Well, to be fair, you have to remember who we're talking about. These are Jews who have grown up hearing about all the miraculous ways God has intervened in the life of Israel. Just think back to Jesus' dialogue a few chapters ago in chapter 3 with with Nicodemus. Do you remember which Old Testament story Jesus references when he's talking about having faith in the Son of God? It was the story of how God commanded Moses to make serpent made of bronze so that any Jew who had been bitten by a poisonous snake could look at the bronze serpent and be healed. Now, how silly does that sound? That sounds more silly than getting into this magical pool of water, that you just look at a snake and you're, you're all of a sudden better. It would take an extreme amount of faith to believe that looking at a metal snake that I would be physically healed. So this is the nation's past. This is, this is who's gathered around this pool. If that's your past, then believing that the first person into the water would be healed doesn't seem that silly anymore. So Jesus approaches this man and asks him, do you want to be healed? The man replies in verse 7, so I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Notice how he really doesn't answer Jesus' question. He, he, like many others, he misses the deeper meaning of Jesus' question. So, so far in John's gospel, we, we've seen these little interactions between Jesus and these, these individuals. And it's like Jesus is talking on one level and everybody else is on a different. So in chapter 3, you remember Jesus told Nicodemus that you had to be born again. Nicodemus replied, how can a man enter his mother's womb for a second time? Jesus is here. Nicodemus, is, his mind's here. Chapter 4, Samaritan woman, Jesus said to her, If you would have known who you were talking to, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She she completely missed what he was talking about. She said, you don't have anything to draw the water with. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Then a little later with his disciples, when Jesus says he has food that they do not know about, they reply, has someone brought him something to eat? And now Jesus asked the invalid if he wants to be healed, And he completely misses the point. It's like Jesus is having these spiritual deep conversations that are up here. And everybody else just kind of, they're still just down here. Jesus wanted to know if he wanted to be healed. Ultimately, Jesus is referring to this man's spiritual healing, not so much as physical healing. But you can tell by the man's reply, he was assuming Jesus was referring to the physical healing. So the man complains he has no one to bring him to the water once it begins to stir. So in verse 8, Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Essentially, Jesus is saying, take your eyes off the water for a moment, off from what you think will heal you, and put your eyes on me. In verse 9, at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. We've seen in John's gospel, when Jesus speaks, things happen. Last week, we saw where Jesus healed a boy from 15, 20 miles away. 
didn't have to put his hands on him, didn't have to see him. The sick boy had no idea why the sickness all of a sudden left his body. But here Jesus wants the man to know who, um, who heals him. Notice again, Jesus speaks to the man's body and his physical body listens and obeys the word of Christ. I love this passage. I love this healing. Now, as I look around, there's a ton of medical people here. When you think about this from a medical perspective, think about what would happen to the muscles in his legs if he'd been an invalid for almost four decades. Now, I've torn both Achilles tendons. Terrible, okay? I know the rehab coming from, you know, walking in a boot for a while. Once you take that boot off, it's not just physical, it's mental. I have to tell myself, pick up your leg, and I have to relearn how to walk. Think of the atrophy in this man's legs. 38 years of not using his legs, and Jesus says to him, get up, and immediately he gets up. This is absolutely incredible. No PT, no OT has to get involved. There's no follow-up visits. He simply gets up, takes his bed, and walks. Now, as you think about that manner, remember there's a multitude of invalids. Multitude means many, a lot of. There's blind, lame, paralyzed, all gathered around this pool. And Jesus comes in. I want you to think about this. And for whatever reason, he singles out this one man. Shines a light on him this day. This was his day to celebrate. But why doesn't Jesus heal everyone? I think that's a question our culture is asked today. There's a multitude of people there who could use a healing why doesn't Jesus heal everyone? He obviously has the power to do so, but it doesn't seem like, unless John just leaves that completely out, it doesn't seem like that's what happened. I think there's two ways to look at this, two perspectives. First, I think this is how our culture typically looks at this. This is why you'll hear some people like be skeptical about God, like, no, nah, there's no God. You can look at this passage and think that Jesus is being cruel and unfair. I mean, how could Jesus, who is all loving, see all these people suffering and just pick out one guy? How could Jesus not step in and offer healing to all these people? It's a good question, right? This can be hard to hear, but you need to hear this. Our physical situations is not always God's primary concern for us. We see this all throughout Scripture. Sometimes God will put us through a really difficult physical situation so that we will see our need for him. So Jesus singling out this one man or seemingly ignoring the multitude could be misunderstood as him being cruel or unfair. Or I think the better way to view this is Jesus is being extremely gracious in healing when he heals this one man. I mean, here's this older guy, seems kind of angry, bitter, helpless. 
He's done nothing to deserve the kindness of Jesus. Nothing. Even when Jesus seeks him out while this man has no one to help him, he doesn't reply back with gratitude. At least John doesn't put it down. He just kind of leaves. He doesn't thank Jesus for noticing him out of all the multitude. Rather, he complains about not having any help. But in his grace and kindness, Jesus steps into this man's life and restore him. I think our culture struggles with these attributes of God's character, that the, this whole idea of fairness. We often operate out of a framework of fairness, not holiness. You know, why, why does he get a trophy and I don't? My goodness, this whole participation trophy generation, I, I'm glad it's kind of swung the other way. Like, I think there's a problem now. Like, we don't celebrate those who win because we're afraid that those who lose might get upset. But we, uh, this whole idea of that's not fair. Fair does not mean that everyone gets the same thing. Fair means getting what you deserve. God shows amazing grace to this man. God was under no obligation to hold anyone that day. He could have walked on past that pool and still been God, still been holy and righteous, worthy of worship. But he stopped, and he changed this one man's life. The fact that he chose to heal this one man is a testimony of his amazing grace. You know, just think back to the Habakkuk series. God might be using that sickness or that trial in your life to be doing a work in your life that you wouldn't understand even if he told you. At the end of verse 9, John gives us an important piece of information as we move through John's gospel. Look at the last phrase of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. Why would John put that in there? Jesus chose to heal this man on this specific day to make a point to these religious leaders. Jesus knew it was the Sabbath. He knew that when he walked to that space. He could have simply saw the man, felt compassion, and said, you know what, I'll come back tomorrow because the day's the Sabbath. He's been there 38 years. What's another day, right? But he didn't. So verse 9, John's giving us some foreshadow. He healed the man on the Sabbath. Look down at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been man who had said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Okay, so, so the Jews have, they have two problems in this passage concerning the Sabbath. We see in verse 10 the first one. The Jews said it's not lawful to take up your bed on the Sabbath. Why not? Why is this such a big deal? Where in the Old Testament does it say, thou shalt not take up your bed on the Sabbath? We need to understand the recent history of the Jews and how that history informs what's going on in this passage. The Pharisees, they were these religious leaders of the day. They're really important spiritual people. You see them all throughout the Gospels. How many times do you think the word Pharisee shows up in the New Testament? It's a bunch. 98 times. 
all throughout the four Gospels, the book of Acts, and then in Philippians. Paul says that he was you know, the greatest of the Pharisees. So 98 times in the New Testament, the word Pharisee is, is used. Now, guess how many times the office of Pharisee appears in the Old Testament? Many guesses. A big, fat zero. Not even once. You ever realize that? 98, you know, they're all over the place in the Gospels. They're around every corner. Pharisees, Pharisees, Pharisees. But why are they just like poof and here they are and they're nowhere in the Old Testament? The Old Testament you see like priests. Now all of a sudden you have priests, scribes, Pharisees. Where did this position come from? Most people think it came from this intertestamental period of the, between the Old Testament and New Testament. There's 400 years roughly between the ending of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. During those 400 years is when most people think these Pharisees developed. Um, you have to remember, before this time, the Jews had experienced exile. Um, the reason they had experienced exile is because they, they have broken the Sabbath, they are worshiping idols, not following God's laws. So now they had returned to Israel. City walls had been rebuilt. They had restored, Herod had restored Solomon's temple, um, even greater than what it was when Solomon built it. Um, and they did not want to be exiled again. So these priests morphed into this role called the Pharisee and basically were the religious police. They were determined to make sure that not the slightest infraction was committed so that they would not experience another exile. But what happened is, is they would put a wall around the laws. We do this. This is kind of common just in human nature. You see this all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, God said, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But when Eve is having this conversation with the serpent, she says, if you've ever noticed this, she says, we're not allowed to even touch of the tree. Well, God never said you couldn't touch it. But she possibly, maybe she or Adam, possibly added the extra step in order to keep them safe. I mean, just think about it. If I'm not allowed to touch an apple, that's going to put one more layer um, of protection from me actually eating that fruit. So these religious leaders added layers to the Old Testament law. Depending on which sect of Pharisees that you followed, they could have taken the Ten Commandments and, and, and turned them into five or six hundred additional rules to obey. So these Jews find this man carrying his bed, and they are appalled to such disregard of the law. Ultimately, this reveals their attitude of their heart. They're more concerned about their rules than they are about God's rules. This dude, so 38 years ago, that would be 1984, He's been paralyzed since 1984. All of a sudden, just gets up and walks, and you're mad because he's carrying his mat? I mean, are you kidding me? Shouldn't they have been celebrating the power of God and been in awe? They just completely miss it. This would be like somebody getting saved and getting baptized. 
And you get upset that the water splashed and ruined something in the church. I mean, who cares? Stuff can be replaced. It's just stuff. Let's celebrate the miracle of salvation. But what happened here was that the love of rules and traditions and possessions was greater than their love for others. Verse 12, they ask him, who is this man? You know, this wicked, evil man who said to you, take up your bed and walk. Who is he? We want him. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to them, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So, so they asked the man, Who had done such a wicked thing on the Sabbath as to heal you and tell you to pick up your bed? The man said, I, I don't know who he was. I love how Jesus, he, he finds him at the temple. This man, he, he has immediate healing, and immediately he goes and worships God. Think about it. 38 years, he's not even allowed to go to the temple. He'd be unclean. Now he can go face to face with God. And then Jesus says something quite surprising to this man. He sees him again. The man's like, there he is. And Jesus comes to him and he says, see, you are well. Look at you. Look at your legs. Then Jesus' next statement is very surprising. He says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What a statement. Now, we need to understand that Jesus is not saying that all physical ailments are from some past sin. We see this truth a little later in chapter 9. We've, I've already brought this passage up earlier um, in this series, but I'm going to bring it up again, and we'll look at it fully when we get to chapter 9. But in chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that, this, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus makes it clear that this man's blindness was not caused by the sin of his parents nor his own. However, sometimes suffering and pain is the direct result of a particular sin. This is what we see in a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper. In that passage, Paul says this to this church in Corinth, chapter 11, verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are Weak and ill, and some have died. Paul says that some of you are weak and ill, and some have even died because of the things that they have or haven't done and should have done or shouldn't have done. So it seems like this man's lameness was somehow connected to his own past sin. We don't know what that could, could be. We can speculate all day. John doesn't tell us. 
And so Jesus now warns him to stop sinning or something bad could happen again. In verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. So John tells us the reason why the Jews are persecuting Jesus. It was because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I mean, the nerve of Jesus actually healing someone of their suffering on the Sabbath. And then Jesus gives his reason for why he healed the man on the Sabbath. He says this, my father is working until now, and I am working. The statement he said to the, to the man about um, that, you know, stop, don't sin anymore, you just mean something bad could happen to you again, that's... Surprising, this is shocking for Jesus to say, my father is working until now and I am working, which leads us to verse 18. This was was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so now we see the real reason why they were seeking to kill him. Yes, healing someone on the Sabbath is one thing, but now Jesus is making himself equal with God. You remember, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they are the religious police of the day. They hold the writings of the Torah very close to their hearts. Verses like, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. You shall have no other gods before me. Along comes this man, marches into Jerusalem. He's making himself equal with God. You can see why they had such a problem with Jesus. According to them, this is blasphemy. He must die. I mean, think about it from their perspective. If people begin to worship him as God then God will punish us again and we will be exiled again. The Jews fully understand what Jesus is claiming here. And this begins this trajectory in John's gospel that will ultimately lead to Jesus at the cross. We see, like, from here on out, like, it just continues to get heated. Like, with each chapter, the anger and the hostility of these religious Jews will grow and grow and grow. While this love and appreciation and worship for Jesus from this other group will also continue to grow and grow and grow. And at some point, these two paths collide. There's two distinct groups on this collision course. The question for you this morning is, which group are you a part of? See, many people spend years looking for things to heal them. But we often turn to the wrong things in searching for that healing. You you may not spend 38 years at a pool or throwing pennies in a fountain, but you continue to go to the waters of social media or videos or movies or food or fame or fortune, possessions, looking for restoration. 
Jesus is asking you today, do you want to be healed? If so, you're not going to find restoration in those waters, but in the living water that only Jesus offers. Come to that water this morning. Don't keep turning to the other stuff, the other garbage. Like this man in chapter 5 who makes excuses because no one would carry him to the water, Jesus wants you to stop making excuses to why you cannot experience healing and just surrender to him today. You know, it may have been this man's past. Maybe he just, man, like I, I really, maybe he done, he, he had done something horrific and maybe he feels like he should be paralyzed in some way. Maybe some of you carry that kind of baggage. Like you think because you have this past that you should still be suffering in some way. See, this man's past may have gotten him to where he was, but Jesus did not hold his past against him. And I'm begging you to not do the same thing. You may have had a bad week. I think Christ would tell you today, confess your sin, repent, and do not let your past dictate your future. Put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are extremely trustworthy. We know that you can step in and intervene in any situation. You're not obligated to bring any kind of physical healing to us. But you've been so kind to heal some. Lord, you've made promises in your word that if we cry out for help, if we call out on your name, that we want to be saved, that, that you will be faithful and safe. So Lord, anyone in this room this morning that needs saved, that, that there's salvations at stake, they, they, they want to be spiritually healed, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you right now and that you would hear them and they would be, they would be saved. They would experience a healing they would stop looking to the waters of this world and look to you, the living water, that you would, be, that you would satisfy them. Lord, thank you for how you're at work. Lord, help us to have eyes for those who are hurting around us. Maybe there's going to be invisible people that we encounter this week that we would typically just walk right past. Lord, I pray that this week you would You'd remind us of this passage, and we would look at them, and we'd ask them, do they want to be healed? That we would tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. That there's a God who loves them, who died for them, who's been raised from the dead, seated on high, who wants to have a relationship with them. Lord, may we have the boldness to speak up. So give us eyes to see those who are hurting. Help us to be on mission this week. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.